Welcome to another episode of Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Adam Hurlson, and I teach preaching and worship at Andrew Newton Theological School in Boston. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. In our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we discuss why Mad Max Fury Road matters for the work of the church. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas of what you might do with Mad Max for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, the 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time, June 5th. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some preacher thoughts from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Today, Matt, though, is a very special day. On the line as our very first guest, our inaugural guest is Eric Barreto. Eric is about to be the Weyerhaeuser Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary and is currently at Luther Seminary in the Twin Cities. He has co-written Exploring the Bible, which comes out in August, and edited Reading Theologically, Thinking Theologically, Writing Theologically, Dancing Theologically. No, he didn't write that last one. But these are books that you should totally buy and read and assign to your church book clubs or seminary courses. Matt, I have seen Eric dance. It's a thing of beauty. I feel like Dancing Theologically is totally a book you could write by. I mean, I think like crocheting theologically might be too far for me, but I think Dancing Theologically is there. Yeah, sure. I did want to do napping theologically, but the publisher didn't want to get behind Hold it. on, Eric. I'm, I'm not done with your introduction. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so last week, Eric decided that we needed to watch Mad Max Fury Road. Eric has been gracious enough to come in and talk about why this movie matters for ministry. Thank you for being here, Eric. Now it's your turn to talk. I am happy to be here. Thanks, uh, Adam and Matt, for the invitation, and happy to be your inaugural guest. Yeah, we're about to uh, get a plaque made and sent to you. So, Eric, Matt, in the early 70s, an Australian ER doctor was introduced to the violence of car crashes and all of the ways in which speed kills. This doctor soon began making movies and put his experience of blood-stained asphalt into a high-speed dystopic action film entitled Mad Max. Mad Max was designed to be a silent movie with sound. That is, it was kinetic like a silent movie. Exposition came in the form of movement, and dialogue was used only when necessary. Nearly 35 years later, that old medical doctor was at it again. George Miller revised and revived the story of Mad Max, but kept its kinetic visual style. The newest installment of the Mad Max franchise, Mad Max Fury Road, is one part Western, one part Exodus epic, one part Roadrunner cartoon. It also flips the typical action expectations and recenters the Mad Max mythology around a woman. Mad Max, the character, is actually peripheral to the conflict of the story. Instead, the mysterious truck driver, Furiosa, takes center stage as the hero. Mad Max then becomes a sidekick as Furiosa tries to smuggle sex slaves into a green place safe from the grasp of the self-proclaimed war god, Immortan Joe. Eric. We have milk and blood, gas and water, exodus and return. We also have a relentless commitment to action. So as you watch this movie, as you've watched it again, what stands out for you as valuable for the church today? 
Yeah, there's a, a couple of different spots I want to drop in. One, I think, is setting the context with the kind of relatively recent thrill we've had with apocalyptic movies, especially young adult dystopia, so The Hunger Games and uh, the other one that's set in Chicago, whose name is escaping me now. Insurgent, like, Divergent, Remergent, yes. Emergent. That's right. Yeah. He, oh, it's all Ents at the end. And the Maze so, Runner. Right, and then Fury Road is kind of a, a bracket of sorts for, for these films in the popular imagination. It kind of inaugurated uh, this kind of apocalyptic movie, and now it's kind of bringing it to new life. And I've always wondered, what is it about our current culture and religiosity that drives us to air-conditioned movie theaters in the middle of the summer to see the world come to an end? Uh, if we have such comfortable lives that we have the, the leisure to go do this, what is it? what is it that we're looking for? What is it that we want besides just entertainment? So I think one of the big questions for the movie is what is the value of humans in the world of Mad Max? And I think this is where apocalyptic visions are actually really helpful, not just as diversions or mere fantasies about revenge and survival, but also I think of a clarifying of values. What is it that we would hold on to when everything else is taken away? I think about when um, Immortan Joe discovers that his, uh, his wives, as he calls them, have been taken away, that on the walls are written, our babies will not be warlords, we are not things, and and the caretaker woman says, you cannot own a human being. Sooner or later, someone pushes back. Uh, so what is the value of these people? I know we want to talk later about the, the, the value of milk and water and oil and all this. But where, where are humans and all this? Part of it, too, is I just find the movie really visually stunning. Uh, the first time I saw it, we paid a babysitter, to, my wife and I, to go see it. And about five minutes in, I thought, this was a mistake. This movie is way... If it's going to be this frenetic and this weird... I don't know if I want to sit here for two hours, but the aesthetic um, is really part of what carries it. It's, the aesthetic is almost more important than the plot itself. So one movie critic called the movie a symphony of vehicular mayhem, which is a really nice way of saying it. Um, going on to say that the movie has a thin plot, but rich textured themes. The story itself is pretty easy, right? Uh, but it's, it's the aesthetic and the beauty of it that really kind of carries it through. In a way, we have to be honest about the movie. It's a two-hour car chase scene. And in, in the summer, this can't go wrong. But I think there's also then these emerging questions about heroes and salvation and redemption. So when Max first shows up, he says, my world is fire and blood. Um, he refuses the, the call to heroic deeds in a world gone mad. He, he reminds me of Charles Barkley, right? Remember when he said that uh, he wasn't a role model, he just refused that mantle. Uh, Max, in a, in a kind of more extreme way, says, all I have to do, left to do, is to survive. That's all I have left. Later on, you'll tell Furiosa that hope is a mistake. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll go insane. And I'm not sure he changes his mind near the end. So for me, in the end, uh, the movie tells, uh, the movie kind of narrates that there is no better place. There is no utopia out there. There is no green place. We only have the broken world in which we live. Uh, but at the end, the world is not as hopeless as it once seemed. Flawed people can make a difference, even if but for a moment. And, and in doing so, they can upturn the world. So in Christianity, the apocalyptic imagination expects God to intercede, but here it is the courage and hope of Furiosa and the begrudging encouragement of, of a Max that doesn't say very much and really has no place in the new world that Furiosa will help create. Uh, I think there's a lot in here to talk about. Uh, there's something here about, about our destinies, about, about our future. And the last thing that struck me as I was re-watching this then is um, that... Despite all these commodities in this broken world, oil, water, the greatest commodity in the end is still witness. Uh, that at the end, when um, 
the, the war boy that's accompanying them. He tells them to witness me, to see me, recognize me. And the last thing that Max tells Furiosa is his name. He withholds it for the whole movie. There's a vulnerability in, sh in sharing our names, but in this last moment, it's something that he can do. There's just common humanity that's being shared. Right. It's really interesting that you, I mean, you've, you've pulled out these themes, Eric, that, that remind me a lot, not just of the apocalyptic, but also of parables, right? Where um, the action is the point, right? We don't get a lot of backstory into any of these people. We don't actually, mm -hmm, sometimes mm -hmm. we don't actually even get their names, right? We just have these moments and from them, we can overlay all sorts of interesting ideas about what it all means. And I think Mad Max in many ways lends itself to that. Matt and I were exchanging texts yesterday about um, the various different ways you could allegorize this movie towards any number of different ends. Uh, you could you could call Furiosa, you know, the, a, a sort of rede a redeemer of, of sorts, but she might also be a Moses of sorts, you know, leading people into the promised land. The very fact that the movie begins with water streaming from a rock gives us some indication that it has a biblical mindset at the very center of it. Entering into this movie, I think you're right to recognize where, where do we even start when we start to think about the ways in which the biblical themes of this movie might meet us in our own church settings? Matt, what about you? What strikes you as valuable for the church's work as you watch this? I mean, I would echo a lot of what Eric has said. I, I, I want to be contrarian about this movie and be the, like, the, the guy who you know, tries to dismantle all of your points. But the truth is, I, just, I love this movie so much. So, so fun, uh, yeah. I, I think when the history books are written that this movie is going to go down as one of the more important films of this decade, if not the most. I, I think it is uh, phenomenal and revolutionary for all kinds of all kinds of ways, especially having to do with what it does to that apocalyptic genre and what it does to gender as well. Adam, in your opening bit, you talked about this film as having a relentless commitment to action. And I love that line because I think you I think it means more even than what you thought it meant. I mean, you're talking <laughs> right. about the like this the the like kinetic most of my writing. I hope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that you're talking about just the the kinesthetics of it. But I think that when we talk about the church, and maybe I'm guilty of over allegorizing a little bit, but I think this movie is a clarion call for the progressive church. I think that in this film you have two pretty specifically warring theologies that are going on. And I think we have to name a Morden Joe is emblematic of, 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 of a classical kind of authoritarian Christianity. And the film gives him the symbolic value to hold that, that he, uh, he lords over people who believe in a, his immortality and then claim for themselves this language of resurrection. I live, I die, I live again. They speak in very Christian language about their relationship to this authoritarian power. Right. I mean, Constantinian even. Yeah. Almost the sort of Cairo rather than the, the, the emblematic or the emblem of the cross. And I think what the movie wants to say is that those kind of theologies, uh, that kind of authoritarian and imperialistic theology doesn't work if you can't measure it well against the well-being of real people. Yeah, it holds out uh, this promise of Valhalla, right, that all these war boys are yearning after. Um, and doesn't ha have people look around and actually see the brokenness of the world that's been created. I, I was really struck watching it again when he, when Morton Joe turns on the water and he turns it off. He says, uh, "Don't become addicted by water." Right. 
it will take hold of you and you will resent its absence as if we had a choice. No, yeah, like we all are addicted to water. This is how this works. Yeah, this is fundamental to humanity is that <laughs> yeah. um, our biology means that we are fully and totally addicted to it. Yeah, yeah. We don't need oil. We don't need bullets. We do need water. Uh, and then that, that's, that, that's held out as this potentially addictive substance that we have to be careful in its use. But then I, I also think, you know, if, if Joe was held up as this kind of theological figure, then I think we need to acknowledge in some ways that the, the film has a kind of anti-theological bent to it, that the whole point is to dismantle that kind of structure. And we call it an apocalyptic film. It's set in this kind of apocalyptic setting that we've come to know well. But in some ways, in theological terms, this is an anti-apocalyptic movie because it is precisely about people who have to decide not to wait for God to intervene and save them. I, I guess when I think about where God is in this movie, the thing that strikes me and the thing that lets me kind of plant my Christian and theological flag here is is those moments of vision that Max gets, right? The, the, that, the, that to me seems like where God comes into the periphery of this thing, that it's it's that vision that lets him prevent his own death at this decisive moment. It's not the authority structure. It's almost a bit of imagination. And I, and I think that's where we, at least for me in the church, I think about how do we preach a Christianity that is not about authority and imperialism and destiny? You know, as, as um, Nux, the, uh, the war boy who converts, says, you know, he, I, I thought my destiny was to drive a support vehicle. And the woman who's with him says, well, maybe it's your manifest destiny not to. And he says, okay, now we make this thing for ourselves, but we're still not doing it alone because we have this whisper of God's vision at our periphery. That's, that's how well, I want to preach it's, this. It's interesting to me that that, that, that God I mean, it, it shows up as a little girl, which is a hearkening back to the original Mad Max where he loses his daughter, right? So we're supposed to understand this as Mad Max's um, daughter. But in some ways you're right to recognize that this is the metaphysical voice. This is the intrusion from the outside world into this world, too. And the fact that it comes in the form of a little girl is consistent with the rest of the movie. And it's very complex ideas with femininity, with um, what it means to be a woman, and how, uh, how themes of motherhood and... Uh, play into this movie. I am I am I want us to, to to talk a little bit about the role of these various different fluids that sort of show up in the movie, right? I mean, so on the one hand, there is the gasoline and the oil. Furiosa at one point, you know, takes the oil from her drive shaft and and sort of continues to rebaptize herself by like putting oil across her forehead over and over again. Either that or anoint herself. It's it's hard to tell which. Um, Meanwhile, they're they're pulling gas trucks. They're in a place where um, the gasoline is a is not just a commodity, but has been um, used and ritualized. Then again, mm -hmm. there is all of this sort of blood and milk imagery. I I think the most stunning part of the movie to me is when Max comes back from killing people, and one of the wives says. Is that your blood? Yeah. And Furiosa says, no, that's somebody else's blood. And then he proceeds to take milk and wash the blood from his own face. Someone else's blood. And 
And I, I'm thinking about all of this in light of the role of Mary. And um, in, in the Holy Land, there is the Holy Sepulchre where, where the, the milk of Mary is like spilled onto the ground and that place has become holy because of it. And I, have a, I had a friend, a colleague come back from the Holy Land and said, you know, Adam, I'm trying to trade the blood of Jesus for the milk of Mary, man. And he was, he was making a good, he was turning a phrase there, but he had something that he wanted to say, which is that this maternal image has been in some ways marginalized within our Christian traditions. And I think Mad Max brings it back to the fore to, to try and figure out how, what is the, how does the milk and the blood coexist? Well, I think there's a couple of moments of transcendence, I think, in this movie, but it's a transcendence that always comes back to bodies, I think, in some significant sense. So I think of two moments in particular, one when one of the wives on the way back, she's praying and one of the other ones says, well, who are you praying to? And she says, whoever's mm -hmm. listening. Uh, there's this kind of still hope, right? So there's this hope in the transcendent, whatever it might be. Or even when Furiosa says, you know, when she says that she's looking for redemption, I don't think she just means to save these five women or to find the green place. There's something bigger involved in that. But I think it always comes back to human bodies. And I think it's important then that women play such an important part in this role. I think about that scene when the, the wives meet the women, at the, the, the ones they're looking for in the green place, and they're kind of fascinated by each other's bodies or touching each other. And there's some hope in that, that recognition of, of, of their identity, of their embodiedness. Um, that's really vital in all this. Um, so I think there, there, is, there is that moment maybe where God is interceding, a, a God that's not out there, but a God that shows up in our midst and what true community looks like or in the seeds that, that the woman is carrying around, the hope of new life. So it's maybe transforming what, um, how we imagine that, that the imminence of transcendence in our own lives. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a very elemental film, right? I mean, it wants us to reckon with bodies and fluids. It wants us to reckon with the very basic elements of creation. I think that's part of why it gets this quote-unquote post-apocalyptic setting. I think one of the things I appreciate it, but it's also one of the ways in which this film becomes kind of infinitely possible for biblical interpretation or metaphorical interpretation is because it's working with such elemental building blocks. Scripture does that too at its best. So a figure like Mary, we can see her only as the the mother who nurses the baby Jesus, right? So the milk becomes important in the in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or whatever it's called, where where her milk spilled on the ground becomes a holy site. But there's this moment in Mad Max at the end when Furiosa, spoiler alert, has been stabbed, and and Matt, Max basically gives her a blood transfusion, right? This also is a maternal moment, where Max has this maternal moment as mothers provide the blood for their children in the womb. It's not that they, um, and it strikes me that the first thing you get from your mother is her blood. And the second thing you get is her milk. It's only later that you need to figure out how to find water. And in some ways, the priority in this movie, especially among the characters who are running both from and to uh, home, is that it's the blood and the milk that is more important to them ultimately. And yet to sustain a life past the relationships that have been built on the road, they need water, they need seeds, they need the rest of the elemental 
uh, fluids in order to survive. I mean, that's part of the trajectory of the film is that it it opens with Max being strung up as the blood bag, right? And and it, in some ways, speaking in the tropes of classic action films and kind of masculinist action films, it's it's disempowered him. It's got him chained up. It's got his the like iron mask over him, and it's got him strung up for blood. And part of the work of the film is to kind of sacralize that a bit and say, no, actually, not only will you be a blood bag for Furiosa at this turning moment at the end, but also the work that he is doing just there to keep even the war boys alive is also in its own way sacred work. And it's not to say that it was okay to chain him up without his permission. I mean, that's a different question. But to say, okay, part of what the film does is then kind of acknowledge the the critical value of all of these bodies. Um, that even the war boys have value and stake and deserve the chance to have blood and, and water and all the things that will keep them alive. Yeah, and there's a, I love this idea that there's deconstruction of the, the heroic male lead in, the, in this movie, in a sense. So he's, he's strung up, he's tied up. He can't do anything for much of the movie. Uh, and in actually a lot of other parts, right? I remember the part when Furiosa uses his shoulder as a, a way to hold right. the gun. All he can do is stand there. And any kind of heroic thing that he does, and I think about it, is also off screen. So when he does come back with all that blood of everybody else, we don't see what he did. We don't see what happened. Um, Furiosa is still kind of the center, the, the center of this movie with Max as, at, at its periphery, an important periphery, but still there. Yeah, they, I mean, in some ways, the biggest narrative impact he has is to be the one to convince them to turn back. Yeah, and in the way he does that is um, begins to betray the common action tropes. He he provides no real rousing speech. He just pulls a map out and says, and here, points <laughs> back here. And then they begin to make sense of it together. And it's interesting that there is in that moment, the spark or the idea comes from Max, but the consensus is built in a very sort of democratic way almost, which is I think consistent with the types of people who hold seeds, right? Like these are people who recognize that, that to hold seeds is to still believe in the ability to sustain a local community that can govern itself rather than turning to a group of people or to a person, an oligarchy or an authoritarian totalitarian uh, type of structure that tells you how you should behave, how to govern yourself. And I, I mean, I, it's interesting to me to watch this movie in a world of copyrighted seeds where um, where to be in agribusiness means to in some ways be in bed with those who are trying to neuter the uh, natural world from its ability to sustain us. It's trying to sort of divorce the democratic principles at the center of something like seed sharing and um, and create a market for them, which um, I think is also part of this this world, is that the person who can, who can control water, for instance, and maybe this is at the center of that Moses story, it's part of the reason that God gets so mad at Moses is because the, worst, the person who can control water in the desert, uh, well, that person can become a god, you know? 
And so when God says, just knock once, man, that's your sign. Like, then everyone know it'll be me and not you. And then he does and disobeys that. In some ways, I think God is trying to say, like, look, you don't get to control this natural resource. Yeah, so I wonder if part of the, the choice that Mad Max puts before us isn't you can either be dependent upon a, a authoritarian or be wholly independent and be by yourself. The choice is between two different kinds of dependency. So either you depend on the authoritarian who tells you what you need and only gives you a, a bit of what you need, or is there a way to imagine depending on a community of, uh, of people trying to watch out for each other, to lean into one another? And Max then becomes a satellite around that, because I think from, from the very first, all he wants to do is to be by himself, to be left alone. But he's pulled into this orbit, and even as he's leaving, he's tied into this community that Fiorosa now is, is hoping to create, even if he's not physically present there. There's a sense in which he now is in their orbit. He's also still dependent on them. So our choice isn't to go off by ourselves. Our choice is who are we going to link up to? Who are we going to depend on uh, for our very existence? Yeah, that's great. I think that's a perfect segue to let's start talking about preaching here. Um, we're going to move to the second part of our show called Preaching to the Choir. This is where we look at lectionary passages for June 5th. We have the story of the widow of Zarephath. We have the psalm of praise about God's care for the oppressed and the marginalized. We also have Paul's resume in Galatians and then Jesus raising a boy from the dead in the town of Nain. So Eric as a biblical scholar and Matt as a preacher, what stands out to you as you think about these passages in light of the themes of Mad Max? Yeah, I love the way that Luke links the, the story of the widow of Zarephath to uh, the story of the widow of Nain. So if you go back to Luke chapter 4 and you look at uh, uh, Jesus' inaugural sermon there, these are stories to which Jesus refers as emblematic of the kind of work that he's going to do. So I, I think it's a happy accident that we have these two stories about women uh, in the lectionary as we're talking about this text. And I think one of the temptations we have here is because they are widows is to imagine them just as marginalized people and not see the incredible power and the incredible faith that they're both demonstrating in these stories. Um, that there's a way in which the widow, uh, widow of Nain, for example, although she doesn't speak in the narrative, uh, Jesus sees something in her uh, sees, a, sees a, a depth of faith that moves him, that moves him with compassion and, and leads to him healing um, her son. Uh, she's the one that's healed in a very significant way in that narrative as well. So yeah, I his think, question, uh, his question, the, why do you weep, becomes very, very powerful. Uh, it's powerful insight into who she is and what's going on at the moment. Yeah. And one of the things going on there is that she is not alone. And I think we're often tempted to, and I've done this too in my own preaching of this text, to say, you know, she's a widow. Her life has come to an end because she doesn't have a husband or a son. But she's surrounded by this community that's grieving with her, that's going out with her, who's a community that's probably not going to desert her. And yet this whole community and this mother and the son need one another. So when Jesus brings them back, it's not just a miracle to say, look at the cool things I can do but it's a stitching together of this community that has been torn apart. Um, and just through the provision of life, which um, is itself a, a really powerful point of the resurrection. So I think these two stories are stories that, that, Luke, um, that Luke brings together and I think are really important for us to read together. How about you, Matt? As you're thinking about this, which, which of these stories seems to make a lot of sense given the themes of Mad Max? Well, I was thinking about the Widow of Zarephath story too. I, kind of in a little bit of a different context. I'm thinking about the first half of that story, which is really about um, scarcity 
that she's living in a land that is overcome by famine. And uh, Elijah comes, commanded by God, and asks her for food and drink. And she's literally gathering sticks, right? She says, I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It's kind of a dark line. I mean, there's a, there's a sense that she is at her very wit's end. And then, of course, Elijah promises that the, the meal and the oil that she has in stock won't run out if he feeds her. And indeed, they don't. There's a, you know, I, I think one way of approaching this is to think about it as theological hope in the face of natural scarcity and, and, and a kind of natural evil there, right? There's famine that has struck the land, but God will deliver us. There's a bit of a Morton Joe in here that if we hope that God provides. But I think that we have to be careful about acknowledging kind of natural scarcity versus moral scarcity here, or natural evil versus moral evil. I, I, the widow of Zarephath is living inside, and it's, this is an area that is worshiping Baal, which is Elijah and God's kind of political and theological enemy in the context of First Kings. There's the implication in this text that the, the famine here is not just natural famine, it's a consequence of a bad political arrangement. It's a moral evil. And so when Elijah says, believe in Yahweh instead, reject one authority, come to the, the good side of the force, uh, and then we will find some abundance together. We've had threads of this conversation. We had a little bit of it in Chinatown when we were talking about the difference between kind of the natural drought of Southern California versus a man-made drought, which was the authorities putting water in the wrong place. I think that's the question that um, Mad Max asks and with, with this basic, who killed the world, right? And, and the realization as you go along that it's Morton Joe and his authoritarianness and the ancestry of that authoritarianness are the ones that killed the world. I think when we think about approaching this, and Adam's done a little bit of that today already, this kind of collapsing distinction in our context between natural and moral evil. We have earthquakes caused by fracking. We have droughts caused by climate change. We have wildfires caused by bad forest management. We have this, these kind of collapsing distinctions that I think I'll, we need to kind of push through this text as we ask, you know, to a Morton Joe and, and his comrades, um, why, did you, why did you guys blow it up? Yeah, and that, and that text, that Zarephath text, is an interesting one because on the one hand, she is made, seems to have made peace with the fact that she's about to die, right? And Elijah comes in and says, well, let me give you a different story. And then her son does die. And then we get a glimpse that she has stopped making peace with death. And similarly, I think with Mad Max, you see the first lines of the movie is like, the instinct is to survive. And at some point, he has made peace with that until Furiosa shows up in his world, at which point he then has to reconcile that he does have hope, that, that his life in the face of death is more than just survival. It's actually flourishing. And if we're talking about how to flourish, then we have to sort of bring up these moral ethical issues, the, we have to face them. We have to contend with them. We can't just sort of live on the periphery trying to escape them in order to survive. We have to attempt to change them. The other thing that I think the Mad Max movie helped me see about both these stories too is to uh, not 
discount the boldness of both of both the widows. So I think about the widow Zarephath, and it could look like she's kind of given up. She's going to cook one last meal, and and this is kind of a, a throwing. She's throwing her hands up, saying enough. I would think about Furiosa and this this plan that she has, which actually makes no sense. It should fail at every point, right. but yet there's a boldness to that. There's a boldness to the widow saying, "I'm going to cook this last meal, and I'm going to try to take some hold over these things that are happening to us." There's a power in the way that the the widow of Nain grieves, and I think Luke actually helps us see this too, because the story right before the widow of Nain is the the story of the the centurion servant that Jesus heals. So the centurion is bold. He's out there. He, he tells Jesus, don't even bother coming to my house. I know if you just say the word, it will happen. And Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith, faith anywhere, right? There's this bold faith that reaches out and demands and asks for something from God. Uh, the, uh, the widow of Nain never speaks in the narrative. But I wonder if by Luke placing the two stories together, it says, there is a faith that is grieving. There is yes. a faith that uh, looks weak to the world but is actually one that Jesus can recognize as faithfulness. So I think that's an encouragement we can give to people too, is that faith doesn't have to be just courageous, just bold. Um, faith can look foolish. Faith can look like a suicide mission. Faith can look like uh, throwing a Hail Mary. Or faith can be full of tears and grief. Yeah, the, the opposite of, of faith isn't doubt. It's indifference, right? I mean, it's... if. If you're lamenting, it means that you are moved, that you care, that um, that you believed in the promises of God to be made true, and they didn't. And that is deeply troubling. It's only deeply troubling because we actually believe them, uh, that we had faith that these promises mattered, and that God is working for good on behalf of God's people. So I, I think you're right to recognize that in the lament, that question, why do you weep, um, I mean, it's hard not also to hear John's gospel where Jesus himself weeps at the grave of Lazarus, not out because of some deep lack of faith. He knows what's going to happen. But in the midst of a broken world, it is a sign of deep and abiding faith to weep for it. I think there's a there's a bit of anger in there too, right? I mean, not necessarily in the, the John moment, but certainly in the widow of Zarephath and maybe even with the widow of Nain, that there's a sense of, one of the righteous faithful responses here is to recognize this gap between the what the world is and what it feels like it should be. And I, I think part of what we see, certainly in Mad Max and certainly in the character of Furiosa, this kind of righteous anger that uh, not necessarily in the context of of grief and loss, but in the context of this kind of political rage, certainly has has a has a place in the film as well. Well, I wonder if we get some of that in the in the psalm, right? So in verses eight through ten, to you, O Lord, I cried, and the Lord I made my supplica- I made supplication. Yeah. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise right. you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? So we could imagine reading that as what profit is there in my faith if I go but to imagine that being voiced in this kind of in this anger, in this righteous anger might actually capture that, the, that, that psalm. I think that's a good place to end this discussion. That wraps up our discussion on Mad Max and the lectionary passages for Ordinary 10. If you want to check out Mad Max Fury Road, it's available in all of the usual streaming places and on HBO Now. This is also the point where we thank you, Eric, for joining us and leading us in conversation and helping us figure out this movie. 
If you'd like what you heard from Eric, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Eric Barreto. And go and order and pre-order his most recent book, Exploring the Bible, which is on Amazon, or even better, go and order it from your local bookstore. Eric, thanks for being here. Thanks, friends. This is a lot of fun. We appreciate it. All right, Adam, but now it is time for our last segment. This one is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? So, one of my very favorite websites this week announced that it would be shutting its virtual internet doors. It's the website called thetoast.com. I know, it's, it's so run sad. by Nicole Cliff and Mallory Ortberg, um, who are the two editors, but they've got a stable of writers, all who have um, struck this lovely tone that is erudite and funny without ever being snobbish. Uh, the creators of the site's also have a deep familiarity with religion and all of its strangeness, but are never really outright hostile to, um, to religion. And so much of what they would write would frequently reflect on their lives as somewhat faithful people or formerly faithful people or on the way to becoming faithful people. And so I would come to this site, not just because I found it entertaining, but I found that it was the source of really helpful, honest insight into the world they have had this wonderful way of breaking through the cliches that swirl around us all of the time and poking fun at them, but also finding some of the deeper resonances within the cliche, which is no easy feat. They are good models ultimately for preaching because they work hard to say something smart and interesting and funny without being totally insufferable and preachy. Uh, so, in honor of their closing, I, I wanted to point everyone to one article that I love um, that is entitled, Everyone Has Imposter Syndrome But You. It's written by Mallory Ortberg. Now, in theological education, in higher education, in the church, this idea of the imposter syndrome is talked about so much recently that it is on the verge of becoming cliche. Um, and if you don't know what the imposter syndrome is, it's the idea that you believe that you are a total failure and that everyone um, is being duped and sooner or later someone is going to find out that you are not as smart or funny or prepared or competent as you believe yourself to, um, as everyone believes you to be. And so this feeling is very common in the lines of work that I'm a part of and I suspect it's also very common in writer communities that, um, that traffic in the toast. And so I just wanted to read a couple of lines from this article because I think it's so funny as, um, as like one level deeper about the imposter syndrome. Um, so the, um, the article begins, Social scientists working on a decades-long population study have recently concluded that every single living resident of the United States suffers from a condition known as imposter syndrome, a psychological phenomenon in which people are unable to internalize their accomplishments except for you. You are an actual fraud who is almost certainly on the verge of being found out by the people who think they love, who only think they love and respect you any day now. And so the article goes on to deepen the deep fears of everyone who thinks that they're an imposter syndrome while also making light of them. It's a very 
funny and complex way to engage this fear. And it only comes from the toast. I don't think I could write or find this anywhere else on the internet. I think it's not yet the satire of the onion, but neither is it the sort of saccharine stuff that passes for comedic writing lately. It's so deep and, and funny. So this week, in honor of the Toast closing its doors on July 1st, I encourage you to go and just search through their archives, especially the, the most read stuff, and avail yourself to all of the, the wonderful ways in which this site has created stuff that I think is really valuable for preachers. It's so good. I love that website so much. And Mallory's voice especially is just uh, totally unique. And you've nailed it on the head. So thank you. Well, I need to go and spend some time in their archives. They do. They have promised that the site itself will uh, not go offline until after the apocalypse. Uh, that's been the promise from the creators. So you should have some time to go and browse through stuff, even if you can't make it by July 1st when they stop publishing new things. Yeah, until, you know, you're... Uh you know, begging for water at the hand of a Morton Joe, you should be able to read the toast. Well, that's that's encouraging, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, what about you? What's your post lead? So this week, uh, news broke that the Universal Studios is planning to launch the Robert Ludlum Cinematic Universe uh, with uh, their... Robert Ludlum is the author of numerous spy novels and especially the the Jason Bourne movies. And so they are working with uh, with The Rock, with Dwayne Johnson, to start up a pick up on one corner of the Robert Ludlum spy universe. And I guess they're going to build out from there. Um, so I've been reflecting on the concept of a cinematic universe. There's a lot of cinematic universes out there right now. So I mean, many. We've, yeah, we've got the... Universal's working on another one based on their old monster movies. But obviously, we've got the, like, the Star Wars universe, which is emerging with these kind of anthology films like Rogue One that aren't just about Luke and Leia. We've got Harry, the Harry, Harry Potter, Potter one. Yeah. Harry Potter. We've got the, the magical creatures coming out, which is not a story about Harry Potter, but is in the universe. We've got, and then obviously the big ones, the, the DC comic universe and the Marvel comic universe, which is the, the thousand pound gorilla of these. It seems like a, a cinematic universe is, is not just based on the recurrence of one character, so it's not James Bond coming back over and over. It's this kind of gradual world building that can happen from all kinds of different perspectives. It makes a lot of economic sense for a studio because then they don't have to bank on one celebrity in the same way. They can kind of work it from multiple angles. And the audiences over time get to kind of hook in and gradually paint a picture of this place. It gradually forms and shapes their context. It gradually, they develop a shared set of expectations for this universe in which potentially kind of multiple genres can flourish inside one universe, which I think Marvel has successfully pulled off with, with Ant-Man, which is basically a comic caper movie set inside the superhero universe. Now, like the part of me that is kind of a film snob rolls my eyes a bit. Like, wasn't it great when people actually made standalone stories and weren't just based, everything wasn't just based off of franchise and copyright recognition? But... On the other hand, I kind of think this is a great way to engage with an audience. So I've been thinking about this in terms of preaching. I've been thinking about this in terms of how the lectionary, whether it's the standard or the narrative lectionary, shapes our preaching. Uh, you know, my, my beef with the standard revised common lectionary is that it 
it often fails to leave us enough time to build up a universe that you're either that, that, that it jumps between stories in ways that don't let us give context and shape to the whole of a slice of the gospel or a slice of the Old Testament histories. So I've been thinking about what a universe-building sermon series would be like. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Last summer, I preached through the life of David in my congregation, which went really, really well, and I enjoyed it. And we took texts from First and Second Samuel and then from his death at the and at uh, the opening of First Kings. But I'm, I'm kind of reconsidering that now because a Life of David sermon series is really still just a franchise. But to make it into a, a homiletic universe, so to speak, we would take the life of David and then preach his life from multiple perspectives. You would preach it from, you would use the Psalms, you would use Saul's perspective, you would use Jonathan's perspective, you would use a you know, an Absalom's perspective. You could use all kinds of different things that would reflect and build up the universe of this moment and the history of God and God's people that I think would allow the congregation to really uh, inhabit a space and time in a way instead of just inhabiting one character. So there's my argument for uh, the homiletic universe, and uh, y'all take it and do something better with it. Yeah, I think you could do it um, from rather than thinking just about character, but from setting, yeah, would, would work really well. I mean, I think about the Marvel Universe right now and that Jessica Jones on Netflix is set in New York and there are Avengers somewhere else in New York. Um, and they don't really cross, but the setting remains the same. Uh, it's still New York City. What if you did just like the Jordan River or Mount Sinai or Jerusalem or something like that? That would be then you could you could gather stories from this particular universe over and over again. Th- everything that happens at the Jordan, from Jesus being baptized to Elijah um, crossing over to you know um, Joshua leading the Israelites to the Promised Land. I mean, it could be pretty interesting that way too. Yeah, I think it's a way of getting at biblical narratives that builds contextual relationships and biblical literacy in a congregation without relying on kind of the the who's who uh kind of bibliographies that we get trapped in a lot so that's anyway that's what i'm thinking about well that's great i I look forward to uh your uh your your cinematic universe of the new testament it could be like the cinematic universe of ephesus So that wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we're not quite done yet. We still have to pick next week's episode. Last time, either one of us had a chance to pick uh, an episode or a movie. I picked Yojimbo. Eric picked Mad Max this week. Now, Matt, it is your turn. What are we going to watch next? So when I say 80s comedy, what comes to mind for you? What what makes a definitive 80s comedy? I, I mean... We already did Ghostbusters, so there's a sort of wryness to it. Sometimes it gets a little bit um, gratuitous. The 80s love nudity in a way that (laughs) is somewhat disconcerting. Um, But it also uh, is sort of ironic. There's a lot of irony in the 80s. Why? What do you think? Well, I'm just thinking of, I think of 80s, I think of a lot of, uh, of, comedies about youth and youth culture i think about right. all of the high school comedies and i was trying to 
wander around in there a little bit. And what I would like for us to go watch is I think an 80s comedy par excellence that also has a deep streak of sincerity and uh, existential joy in it. So what I would like us to go watch is uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Matthew Broderick is like 60 years old. Do you know that? And that's, that, that means Ferris Bueller's Day Off is, is an old movie. It is an, a really old movie. But we have also got Paul's language uh, in Galatians on the fundamental justification by faith coming up for this. And I think it's oh, going to be interesting to talk about uh, the role of Sabbath, sure, is a kind of low-hanging fruit, but also what it means to be free by the grace of God uh, and Ferris Bueller. So that's, that's what's going to be on my mind. Oh, beautiful. Well, thanks all for listening. And don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you have questions about the show, if you want to tell us how we got it all wrong, if you want to praise our great insight, if you just want to suggest a guest for a show, come to our Facebook page and leave a message for us. We also have a website, Technicolor Jesus, where you can find links to Eric's books and to other things that we talked about on our show today. Also, if you, if you get a chance, leave us a review on iTunes. They're invaluable in helping other folks find the show. Also, if you like the show, tell a friend, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>